0: This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here are your
1: hosts, Jeff Deist and Dr. Bob Murphy. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Human Action Podcast. I am one of your standard hosts, Bob Murphy. Jeff can't be with us this week, but he will be back next week. We do have, though, uh, for your listening pleasure, Peter St. Ange with us. Peter, how's it going? It is going great, Bob. Thanks. So I wanted to have you on because you've been just tweeting up a storm, uh, you know, (laughs) parlaying some of your YouTube videos on all the banking stuff. So we have a few topics I want to hit, but one in particular that struck me that was interesting that I haven't seen other people reporting on it, but I saw it from you was the fact that the head of Silicon Valley Bank was not just a regular banker. He was also tied in with the Fed. So can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, it's pretty astounding. So he was one of the nine directors of the San Francisco Fed, which is the regional Fed that in theory is regulating and monitoring, supervising Silicon Valley Bank. And of course, when Silicon Va- Valley Bank failed, the first response of the regulators was to scapegoat and try to figure out, you know, who did what. And the irony there is that the the uh malfeasant here, the The person who caused this, uh, the CEO of the bank itself is actually one of them. So, you know, sort of the um, uh, I can't believe there's gambling going on here. Let me read a
1: little bit because this is not this is nothing new in case people are are, are astounded that this happened. This. So one of the things back when the Bernie Madoff, you know, Ponzi scheme was unveiled and and that was a big deal for what I did some research into that. And so one element of that story that I didn't hear a lot of people picking up was that Madoff himself was t- connected to the SEC. And in fact, um, there were private watchdog groups um, that were for years, in some cases, sending you know warnings to the SEC, the various regulatory bodies saying, hey, I've been looking at this Madoff uh, enterprise and these numbers just don't make any sense. This has to be, a pon- I don't know if they said it has to be a Ponzi scheme, but they were saying these numbers don't make any sense. This, this can't be right. You need to look into this. And the warnings were ignored for years. So here I'm reading just uh, from a Fortune article on this, you know, after the Bernie Madoff thing broke. And it says, for years, Madoff was a bright star in the SEC's constellation, a legendary investment manager with celebrity clients, as well as multitudes of ordinary investors. He was chairman of the NASDAQ stock market in 1990, 91 and 93. And he sat on SEC advisory committees. Now, in this Fortune article, they don't say this, but I vaguely recall at the time that it wasn't really that Madoff was on various committees generically but specifically at least one of them had to do with like ethical conduct on you know in financial markets like so (laughs) that it was really a case of the fox guarding the hen house uh let's see uh and see um then congress bradman that was the question posed in washington after madoff was arrested and confessed blah 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 top sec officials were hauled before congress Uh, The agency's enforcement inspection staff had received credible complaints about Madoff, including specific red flags on his operations from financial analyst whistleblower Harry Markopoulos and his investigators, which were conveyed to SEC staff in Boston, New York and Washington and so forth. Okay, so again, it's when it comes to people talk about who don't know much. Oh, we need to have stricter regulation. And, you know, Elizabeth Warren has been going off about what SVP did and my joke was: Is she going to enforce 100 percent reserve banking? Like, what specifically are they going to do? You know, in light of this, but, but with the Madoff thing, yeah, it's it was literally the private sector was on to him first and was warning mm-hmm. the government regulators, and they ignored it partly because Madoff himself was sitting on some of those uh, boards.
0: Right, and if you are a professional cat burglar, uh, you would very much like to be on the government regulator of of <laughs> burglary of of who gets to enter houses right so it is a very attractive target for any scammer i mean really you know if you 're good at your job, the first thing you 're going to do is try to infiltrate those kinds of ethic boards and any kind of oversight committee. Uh, the profits are enormous right because the the other scammer competition is shut out and you've got this uh, privileged access. So I think it should concern people. And You know, there's there's kind of a wider question. Our government places uh, administrative independence on a pedestal. Right. Uh, independent central banking, uh, d- independent regulators, ethics and so on. And one might ask the question, you know, if if that independence means that these regulators and these functions are isolated from the rest of the government, and by the way, isolated from the people who allegedly run the country. uh, Are you sort of creating this this uh, closed box where you've got, you know, these these contacts and circulation, kind of a revolving door and golden parachutes in their little world so that it becomes a sort of crony universe uh, that we the people have no influence over? Yeah. And it's, I'm glad you used that phrase, the revolving door. I'm sure people have heard that and in case people have heard it and they
1: actually never had someone spell it. The, the idea is that people in industry, you know, they serve there, they get time in industry, then they go when they retire, that they, they go, they go put into public service and they go in the various regulatory bodies that oversee the industries they used to be a part of. And the concern is wh- whether it's like completely, you know, cynical and they do it knowing full what's going on or whether it's merely just, hey, you know, those people, they're your buddies and you re- you remember what it was like to be running a bank or, you know, what, you know, and or to run a car company. And geez, that's really a tough job. And, you know, now that I'm in the regulatory seat, you know, let me try to, you know, look, look out for those guys. And so, but the idea being that you're going to be beholden to them and do favors. And then also, too, the way it works in practice it's it's not it's not as naked as uh you know somebody funneling money to a swiss bank account or something to the person while they're sitting on the you know cftc or whatever it's just that they know if i play ball if i'm a team player whatnot then when I step down from that role, I might get a cushy consulting position, you know, as the elder statesman. And, you know, I've been in the industry for 30 years and in and out of government service. And now I have mm-hmm. this cushy job where I write a blog post once a week and get paid $200,000 a year, you know, that that sort of thing. So right. it's, it's a very, you know, um, old boys network kind of arrangement. But also it's when people say, oh, well, we need to fix it. It would be tricky, you know, given that the federal government is going to come in and regulate these industries or these financial sectors or whatnot. The solution is not to say, "Okay, well, then no one with any industry experience can have any input in what we do. Exactly. Because then it's complete chaos. Uh, To give an example, it was uh, so in case people don't know, there's these things when the government announces some new rule, you know, proposed rulemaking or whatever their jargon is. Then there's a there's a a comment period, you know, industry and whatever and lobby groups weigh in on it. And again, that's not merely just groups vying for their share of the pie. In some cases, it really is the case that the proposed regulations are crazy, like they literally contradict Mm -hmm. some other regulation. And somebody has to come forward and say. Uh, you guys can't do that so an example would be with the ethanol regulations that were put in place under the George W Bush you, you know that free market laissez-faire radical anarchist George <laughs> W Bush one of the things that his administration put through were ethanol requirement that you know you had to blend in more ethanol into um, the the fuel mix and the way that the regulation was it wasn't a percentage it was just there was a staircase of absolute amounts and so then when the Great Recession hit and you know, driving, well, it wasn't drives, but fuel consumption went down, I think, because of, you know, trucking and stuff. Uh, all of a sudden, the percentage of ethanol in the fuel mix was going to be so high, it was going to violate some other rule about, you know, that was going to mess up people's engines. And so, you know, and right. so they were getting exemptions, like every year they had to, you know, do another exemption or something because this, the regulation, as stated, would have been insane. But so but the problem, you know, it's top down, you know, there's no right way for the government to kind of run an
0: economy. No, you're absolutely right. And, you know, the once you give government control of a function, like once you are, um, you know, giving government the ability to completely determine all of the rules and all of the capital flows uh, in our financial system, the only way to do that and not break it is to bring in insiders. And then the question is, well, once you bring insiders, does that inevitably lead to the fox guarding the henhouse? So regulatory capture. Uh, and, you know, if we look in finance, yes, yes, it appears to. Um, a second issue, Bob, is something that you mentioned is the, con- or the regulations contradicting each other. And this is a bit like if you go to the doctor and if you are taking 100 different prescription medicines, You better have a good doctor because that doctor has to figure out which ones contradict, which ones interact, which ones are going to kill you. And we have an economy today that has so many, literally nobody knows how many regulations there are, right? Every year, you've got these various attempts by Mercatus and different outfits that try to tally up the regulations. Literally, they go by page count because nobody has the vaguest concept how many regulations, how many, essentially, how many laws uh, companies have to uh, have to be following. So it's not even hundred medicines that you're on, these are tens of thousands of medicines. Uh, so not only do you need that expertise, in fact, to the point where you're dealing with such a small number of people that, yes, there's a good chance you're going to have regulatory capture, they're all going to know each other. They're going to have worked for each other, they're going to work for each other in future. Uh, but in addition to that, you have no idea what kind of uh, deadly, you know outcomes are going to come from those interactions. So, I mean, it is to the point where even if you bring in a bunch of PhDs who try to determine what are the unintended consequences, what are the perverse incentives, if you're talking millions of pages of rules that we don't have humans that good yet, we won't for a while yet. Right. And another ex- famous
1: example of that was um, when Hank Paulson was you know, in government when the financial crisis hit and then the fateful decision to, to let Lehman go down. You know, a lot of people right. were saying, well, gee, I wonder if that's because, you know, he had been a rival of them, you know, when he was in the private sector. And, you know, who knows? But it's it's hard again, even if it's not purely cynical, it, it's hard for people. That's why, you know, judges have to recuse themselves if, you know, if, the, yep. if their daughter's on the guy's daughter's on trial or something, he can't be the judge in that case. You know, things like exactly. that. Um, so, so I, I suppose why don't we just be, instead of just moving on and we just complained about a bunch of stuff, what would, and I know we have other things we, we want to get into, but just to not leave people hanging there. So are we just whining and bellyaching or, you know, how could there be regular quote regulation of the financial sector if we don't have an SEC right. running it or a CFTC and so forth?
0: Oh, I uh, my ideal, I think uh, yours as well would just be to get rid of all of the regulations and go to a liability based system Uh, This is largely what we had in the um, the Lochner era uh, before the progressives destroyed our economy. And so the idea was you can pretty much do what you want because economic rights are fundamental human rights. Uh, And if you hurt somebody, right, if you are negligent or, you know, if you cause some harm to somebody else, then of course they can take you to court. It was much easier to do that because the Lawyers Guild had not yet captured the legal system. Uh, And so that meant that, you know, potential evildoers companies who are making unsafe products or whatever, they would be forced to um, to include the damage to consumers, okay? They would be forced to include that in the price of the item. And so this, this is economically extremely efficient. Uh, but another side benefit, of course, is that you just get rid of the entire regulatory state. You go back to a uh, liability uh, basis, you, you know, based on common law, based on very, very simple, easy-to-understand rules uh, that makes sense to... <laughs> To the general public, and that are understandable for companies, so they can actually guess what's right and what's wrong based on common sense, not based on having to hire, you know, lawyers for a million dollars to read through uh, thousands of regulations.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and two, I think people need to remember that the choice isn't regulation or not; it's regulation from the top down and from political institutions. Where if something goes wrong. They get more funding. Right. So the SEC completely fumbled the ball on Bertie Madoff. It's not that they had their yeah. budget cut in half and they had to have massive layoffs. Everyone, Oh, we need to beef up the SEC. Clearly they're understaffed. Right. Or if a plane crashes, not because of some freak event, but because, you know, the inspectors from the FAA were caught smoking dope behind the, you know, the shed or something instead of doing what they're supposed to do. It's not that the SEC or the FAA loses funding, it actually gets more funding, right? Because, oh, clearly it's an antiquated system. We've been starving them for fun. So it's not surprising that those systems, those oversight bodies don't work very well when the, the incentives yeah. are that messed up. It's almost like you're just relying on the, the basic decency of humans to, to do the right thing, even though the incentives are the opposite. And then, you know, where in the world do you want to like not rely on human decency? It's at like the level of the mm-hmm. federal government and bureaucracy is up there. Um, so you but you can have, you know, private watchdog groups again that that um, Harry Markleblips, he was the one who was flagging Madoff's. You know, he wasn't just doing that as a hobby. That was like his business was he was an, an analyst who gave reports to subscribers and things. And he was just warning his his people and his I don't know if it was a newsletter or how he did it saying, hey, you know, I'd steer clear of this Madoff guy. And then he just as a good citizen passed some of that stuff up, you know, up the chain. Um, so yes. Or, you know, consumer reports thing, you know, you want to go buy a new car. There's plenty of private groups that evaluate them. You can get all sorts of information, especially now with the internet. So it's, it's easy. And again, the, I would just caution people to not just assume, well, yeah, yeah. Have all that stuff, but really is a, you know, to really make sure the job gets done, you got to have Washington DC in charge of it. What more would they have to do to show that? No, that that's not a good strategy.
0: Well, you're absolutely right. If you look at FTX and really across crypto, the, you know, people in crypto, uh, A, there's a lot of them who are extraordinarily smart. B, they are very, very vigilant, um, very, you know, passionate, enthusiastic. People knew FTX, uh, Sam Bankman fried was shady years ago. Uh, you know, there's there's concerns about uh, Tether or Binance. Like any company that could be shady, it, there's an entire industry of people who go and look after these. CoffeeZilla, for example, is one on YouTube. He's great. He kind of goes through. He says, does this look like a scam? Does this not? There is an entire free market industry that is dedicated to detecting fraud. Uh, the uh, And, you know, the government... If we take the case of FTX, he was literally meeting with, let's see, he met with Gensler. He met with the White House over and over. He was hanging out. He was having face-to-face meetings with the heads of these agencies. You know, you don't just get that if you're nobody, okay? Uh, somebody's got to call somebody to get you that face-to-face meeting with him. Uh, so the idea that I, <laughs> we, the people, knew, right, we, the industry, we were trying to warn about all these scams. We were warning users, don't put your money into this guy. He's a scammer. And the regulators were sitting there whining and dining with this guy. So it should raise suspicion uh, whether the regulators are cleaning it up or are they the ones making it dirty? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, why don't we
1: transition? Another thing that you did recently um, that I was very interested in was you were talking about the Bank of Japan uh, and you know some of their impending losses or or warnings they're putting out, and so what maybe just quickly tell the people what the you know what 's the news hook, and then we 'll talk more broadly about these fascinating topics
0: yeah, so uh yesterday, Bank of Japan warned that if rates on the ten year bond go to two percent, then they 're going to lo- they 're going to have a loss on their books of about four hundred billion dollars, and you know the Japanese economy' is much smaller, so if we take that in u s terms it'd be something like one point eight trillion dollars of losses on their books and the rates up there have been trying very hard to get to uh two percent in other words uh, uh bonds have been falling and then the central bank of japan has been moving heaven and earth to try to buy these up um in order to stop that and so the, you know that then raises the question okay what exactly happens to a country uh if their central bank is losing money and that's topical here because our own beloved federal reserve is now losing about two billion dollars. Uh, per week, and those losses are just accumulating for them now. Now that particular figure is is that the, the reduc- like the
1: mark to market loss and reduction in the asset value or is that the, the mismatch in how much they're paying like is that a cash flow loss? Do you know?
0: Uh, I, I mean a cash flow so uh, let's see they've got it booked at a certain amount. yeah, this is just from the roll off. So okay. they 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 have not gone back and that I know of and marked the market their entire portfolio. If they did, I suspect to be a very very large number. Okay, yeah, and, I mean, and also you would expect that to happen all at once. So. Yeah, because we
1: yeah. yeah we covered um a uh, yeah, right and interest rates aren't rising every week, so that they yeah. it must be that yeah. number. Right. Yeah, because the, the distinction for the listener and we did Jeff and I did cover this back. Um, Mercatus came out with a a study talking about the Fed's losses, and so there yeah there's the the two prong distinction of just, you know, their assets get marked down. So if they had to realize it, that would be a loss. But then mm-hmm. even, you know, you could say, oh, yeah, but they're going to hold to maturity. So who cares? But right. actual cash flow, they're in trouble because they're paying interest, you know, on, on right. reserves to the banks. And so that's money going out their door. And so then if they're, you know, getting less then they because of that. So anyway, that was. So what? what's uh, why should the average American citizen care?
0: Right. So in a be? sense. Uh, yeah, so in a sense, it, the the losses themselves um, don't matter that much, right? The Fed has a giant money printer in the basement; uh, they can make anything. It's not like they're going to have to shut down and lay off um, Jerome Powell, however tempting that may be. Um, the main real world impact is just that the Fed maintains this balance sheet, and they've got a bunch of assets and a bunch of liabilities. The liabilities are primarily dollar, and it's various counterfeit uh, versions. And if that goes negative, in other words, if they're technically technically bankrupt, then at that point they stop handing profits over to Congress. And those profits are actually pretty large. They're about $100 billion a year before COVID, uh, which is about half of what the corporate income tax takes. Um, so that's the main real-world impact is simply that, you know, the sort of free money shuts off for governments, and then they have to find some way uh, to replace that. And, you know, the way we're going at the moment it, it could be many decades uh, before that money flow goes back to Treasury. Uh, but, you know, before people say on, ah, you know, okay, let's just let it rip. Of course, um, you know, when we look at the Fed's balance sheet, uh, and we look at all their liabilities, in a sense, those are the, the uh, scalps, or like the deer on the wall mounted on the wall for all of the resources uh, that 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 they have uh, counterfeited over the years, and that they have seized from the rest of us. So that's not to say necessarily that um, you know that it's a good thing when the Fed is is running around printing up new money, uh, but it is to say that the harm came from printing the money. The harm is not necessarily whether technically you know they have greater their liabilities than assets. Okay,
1: why don't we take a minute because um, you you made a bunch of good points there. But again, I I know some listeners they they probably hear these things, but no one's ever fully explained it. So just the, the piece you, you sort of offhand remarked, that, oh, yeah, and the Fed, I guess the, the verb they use is remitted, like they remit their profits to the Treasury. Yeah. What? Yeah. I, some people might be surprised to hear like, well, no, I thought the Fed was this independent thing sitting over here and its job was to, uh, you know, maintain high employment and low price inflation. And that's its dual mandate. What do you mean the Fed's giving money to Congress? How does that work?
0: Yeah, this was kind of the deal ever since the beginning of modern central banking with the Bank of England, um, really in 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 France, John Law's scam uh, had, had uh, worked the same way. But generally, the idea is that every central bank in the world, they print up money, and then they can lend that money out at interest. And so they make profits every year, right? Uh, if if you're a counterfeiter, and you're lending out your counterfeit money, it would be really shocking if you didn't make profits, you'd be, a, a, you know, a pretty bad lender at that point. Uh, and they hand that money over to government. And so in a sense, you can look at it as the government licenses central banks to be counterfeiters. And in exchange, the central banks give them, you know, chunks of money. And in the U.S. case, uh, that comes out to about $100 billion a year. But the same pattern is is really duplicated all over the world. Um, the Bank of England is, is really kind of, you know, I think the modern template. Uh, and then the Fed ultimately was based on that. Yeah, and so for
1: listeners, if you get my book on... Uh, money mechanics from the Mises Institute. It's free. you Get the PDF if you want. We'll put a link in the show notes page uh, for this episode. I go through the specifics with the Federal Reserve, so it's it's this weird. People talk. You know, I'm sure you hear this too, Peter. When people are like, oh, the Fed's privately owned, and it's like, yes and no. So yes, the <laughs> member they they are like shareholders. The Federal Reserve does have shareholders that are private entities. So it's not like the Food and Drug Administration. It is kind of a weird thing and they they do get guaranteed you know so they had to put in capital you know to to get into the system to become a shareholder and then they do get you know the fed like you say in a a normal year would have a bunch of profit because it's again they got a printing press they buy bonds they earn interest the fed has expenses you know it's got all the staff economists and stuff cranking out papers saying how great the fed is they got the you know lighting they got to pay someone to cut the lawn or whatever but typically they have a bunch of profit they do distribute dividends to their you know the, their shareholders but and it's it's a fixed number it's of what they give and then yeah they got a pile usually left over and they remit that to the treasury and like you say like presumably that's sort of a quid pro quo that the you know the federal government is saying all right we're going to give you this privileged position but in exchange you know after you pay yourself a handsome little guaranteed return you give us the balance and you know so that's a nice little uh, scratch my back I'll scratch your kind of relationship and so, what you're saying, Peter, is among other possible ramifications, one implication of the fact that the Fed is not just suffering a, a reduction on its asset side, but also, like we said, is even cash flow negative. I believe because again, they're paying more in interest to bankers than mm-hmm. you know they're getting in. That they 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 don't have excess earnings right now to be remitting to the Treasury, and in fact, they're right. like reporting it. It's this weird accounting thing where they they have a negative liability to the treasury and so it's going to take Which time to win that Which is an asset for them. Yes. Right. Yeah, so that's an asset believe it or not. That's very cute. So, yeah. So among other things that yes that up till now so it, I guess from the taxpayer's perspective sure the fed was printing a bunch of money and making you know dollars have a diluted purchasing power unless I happen to be a defense contractor or whatever. And then, um, but on the bright side, given the level of government spending and taxation, borrowing was a hundred billion less than it otherwise would have been in 2019 right. or something. Is, is that kind of what you're saying? Whereas now, something else will have to give because that extra amount coming back is is now not showing up.
0: Right. And looking at recent experience, we would assume that number one, the debt would go up. Number two, taxes would go up. It is inconceivable in this day and age that spending would go down. So that extra $100 billion will have to come out of one of those. And, you know, one of the, uh, uh, I think it's good just to mention the private ownership. That gets a lot of attention, I think, online. Um, the private ownership, I don't think is that, it's not such a huge deal. It rankles for sure, right? Because the Fed is supposed to be this disinterested independent agency. But actually, if it turns out it's, uh, you know, owned by the banks, that's pretty disgusting. Uh, but, you know, I think the vast majority of the damage that the Fed is doing is this printing up of the money supply. And it does that not necessarily because the banks per se tell it to every year. It's kind of designed uh, to work that way, you know, to uh, to be sort of a standing bailout, to encourage uh, the financial system to grow as quickly as possible. And, you know, a- as opposed to a free market system where growing as fast as possible would then uh, lend to periodic panics, you know, once you sort of... Um, put those guardrails in and make it absolutely impossible to fail, then yes, the thing can go incredibly fast. They can drive 150 miles per hour all the time. Uh, and then we get the situation, you know, we've seen over the past 15 years where, you know, even, even a light drizzle uh, turns into an existential crisis. I don't know if you remember, Bob, in, in 2008, John Stewart, comedian John Stewart, who was great at one time, uh, he had a rant about the financial system. And he said, you know, they keep saying... Um, You know, this is the perfect storm. This is the once in a century storm. But these these things are happening every week. I'm starting to think we uh, this is not a perfect storm. This is a regular storm. And we have a shitty boat. And I think, you know, when we talk about SVB, when we talk about Deutsche Bank or Credit Suisse or all these panics going on right now, when you dig into each one individually, they're not that big a deal. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank, you know, they didn't have some catastrophic, you know, like the guy siphoned off half the resources and went and bought an island like Sam Bankman fried These are regular storms. Uh, Credit Suisse has been badly run for 20 years. Everybody's known this. Uh, It's just bank after bank that's running into these regular storms. And, you know, they keep magnifying into perfect storms. And so I think that, you know, Jon Stewart's point uh, basically holds that we have an incredibly fragile financial system. It is fragile because the Fed you know, sort of does that uh, standing bailout guarantee through the money printer. And, you know, more than whether it's privately owned or something, uh, I think that that is is really sort of the existential question, really, for our future, because every time that it collapses, you know, we get a Leviathan, uh, sort of a ratchet up, like a Bob Hicks style ratchet up in Leviathan.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, right. I agree with you. That That's why I say it's a weird, it's not because um, yep. they're not private um, companies I guess the huge, the huge difference is like the Federal Open Market Committee. Like most of those members are picked through the political process, and certainly the chair, you know, has to be nominated it, and confirmed. That's all political, politically right. done. Uh, on the other hand, it. I just think if if Pfizer literally owned twenty percent of the FDA, that would be right. weird, and you know, and and got paid, you know, based on the FDA's <laughs> profits every year, or so. And if the FDA bought and sold pharmaceuticals and made money that way and then gave some of the returns to Pfizer, that would be weird.
0: <laughs> yet, Which bears some mm-hmm. resemblance to reality, <laughs> in fact. Yeah, and, and yes, yeah, it is, is absolutely um, super weird. And, you know, on that private ownership thing, I mean, it's, it's very cute how they run it. So whenever it's convenient for the Fed, they're a public agency. You know, they've got, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they got the Eagle and they got the whole thing. And then whenever it's useful for them in other contexts, now they say, no, 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 we're private. You know, you got to have freedom of commerce and, you know, what right, are a right. communist. Uh, so for example, FOIA requests, right? Freedom of Information Act requests, which are a very, very important, um, you know, for us at Heritage, we use those to try to see what's going on in the inside. And so if we are asking, for example, who is imposing a CBDC dystopia on our country, well, those meetings are occurring at the Fed. And we cannot... File FOIA's against the Fed because in that context it's private. Hmm. So I think it's it's it, it's not just weird; it's evil the way that they play. They they sort of coast this gray zone that only exists for the Federal Reserve, right? What other agency in America is neither public nor private? legal from a legal uh, point of view. How, how did, do you know how that works? So that, that's a great point. I didn't realize
1: that. I, I never thought about yep. it. Like if. If Elizabeth Warren is meeting with
0: lobbyists, can you FOIA that or not? Politicians, you can't. Um, all government agencies, uh, of, uh, you know, uh, of course, you can. There are certain national security, which, of course, is a very expansive and flexible term. Mm. Uh, when it comes to the Fed, the Board of Governors, you can. The regionals, you cannot. And of course, uh, you know, they'll claim, uh, you know, this could influence markets, things like this. So the the, the sort of uh, Fed secrecy version of what the CIA does is to claim that, you know, this is uh, market sensitive information. Uh, Ron Paul famously used to grill them, and and he would just say, "I want information on this," and inevitably the Fed chair would say, "No, <laughs> right, <laughs> that's yeah, it." My and favorite. At which point, yeah, my, yeah, right. Yeah.
1: It wasn't it wasn't with Ron. You know, Ron Paul had left to this, but my favorite of that was December of two thousand eight. Right, so a few months after the financial crisis, this is when the Fed's doing all the extraordinary measures, and Bernanke's sitting before you know some congressional committee, and they weren't. Second-guessing him, they weren't saying you're not allowed to do these. They just said, okay, you're you're telling you just testified that you know you have this new window that's open, this new facility, blah blah blah, that is getting toxic assets, and so far you've dispersed. I don't remember the number was. It was I think hundreds of billions at that point uh, in in loans, just in the last few months. Can you tell us who the recipients of those loans were? And of (laughs) course, Bernanke said, well, no, that would defeat the purpose of the program. So no. So it's. Congress couldn't, not only had no authority to stop him from just creating hundreds of billions and handing it out to bankers, he didn't even have to tell them which bankers he was giving it to. It was just, it was great. It,
0: it, it's it's astounding. And, you know, the idea that the economy is run by an independent agency to which we, the voters, you know, have no direct control I, I'm not sure that was the premise of the Constitution. You know, the idea that we, the voters, are so stupid that you've just got to keep us out of the way and you've got to let our betters manage us, that that does not sound like the sort of core bargain of the American Republic. Yeah, and
1: it's, well, you mentioned John Stewart a minute ago. He had a good one. He, I think it was Alan Greenspan. He had Alan Greenspan as a guest at one point and asked him, you know, you you normally believe in free markets and blah, 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 but yet... The Federal Reserve kind of just like is the central agency <laughs> that sets interest rates and stuff. Isn't that a contradiction? You know, and Greenspan, you know, gave some double talk or whatever. But I thought yeah, that's a pretty good, you know, coming from John's, You know, obviously John Stewart isn't a laissez-faire, you know, Rothbardian, but he was saying your
0: rhetoric, Greenspan, you claim to be, and yet, yeah, that that is actually something that I think is topical and interesting. All right, is that there are a lot of Bernie Bros, and I would more or less put Jon Stewart um, in that batch, there are, uh, you know, and this was the Occupy Wall Street people uh, that showed up in right around the same time that the Tea Party did, right? And I was, I was very excited back then, What well, this is uh, 2008, 2009, I was really excited because you had all these people on the left who were pissed off at, you know, the way our financial system works, and they were pissed off at the Fed, and they wanted change. He had all these people on the right who felt the same way. And I thought, oh, man, you guys should sit down and get together and maybe mm-hmm. do something about this and change it. And then, of course, you know, the media came in and, you know, no, 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 you're racist. Or you, you, I don't even know if they were still, you know, peddling that back then. But whatever it was, you know, they came in and, and sort of threw in the apple of discord and tried to break everybody up. And I still retain hope. That you know, there are a lot of people on the left. I know among Bitcoiners, for example, uh, a, a lot of you know my followers are they're very left wing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, usually they find me through Bitcoin, and and Bitcoin appeals to you know wide variety. Um, most people who own Bitcoin are actually uh, left wing. That's probably just a function of their age, right? Younger people tend to grok it uh, better than older, and younger people also haven't they haven't had enough life experience to uh, <laughs> graduate from progressivism. Um, but at any rate, I do still hold out hope that, you know, left and right can get together on this and the Bernie bros and the end caps can unite as one and change this freaking system. And I figure change the stuff that we agree is bad. We'll get all that fixed. That'll take, you know, three months maximum. And then at that point, we can go back to fighting.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. It'd be better to be fighting with a hard money in place. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's right. How much, how much better is combat with hard money
1: Right. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. That's, that's that is interesting. Can, let me circle back, Peter. Um, can we just think through? Because you know we're both professional economists, and we you know we 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 know what we're doing here. So I'm just I want to explore a little bit more deeply this issue of you know should we care about Fed losses? So I, yes, what you just what you said so far, I like that. You're trying to isolate and say, look, it's not so much. Oh no, that like. The Fed loaded up on a trillion dollars of, you know, X during COVID or whatever. I'm obviously just making up rounded numbers yeah. of uh, treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, other agency debt. OK. And then, oh, no, right. interest rates rose rapidly. So there was a big asset. Le- and your point is that, no, the, the real problem was that they just created a trillion dollars through accounting gimmicks mm-hmm. and loaded up. And so, the, you know, that, that's the issue. I don't care as much about whether they turned a profit on that or not.
0: Right, so the metaphor that I like for that is imagine that you're a counterfeiter and you print up a million dollars in the basement and then you go on to, you know, into the casino or onto FTX and you lose 90% of it gambling. So, you know, is that a bad thing? Well, if you pretend the, that the original money was real, then you just lost $900,000. That's an absolute catastrophe. Uh, you should re-examine your life choices. On the other hand, uh, you know, if you recognize that it was just fake money that you printed up, then it really doesn't matter to you. Now, it matters to the broader economy because you just poured, you know, a million dollars of uh, fake money into the economy. So you've now effectively stolen um, buying power from every other dollar in existence, right? And so now if you stick with that uh, counterfeiter and what if he goes home and does it again and again and again and again? In none of those scenarios is, uh, you know, is he suffering losses, right? You know, it's not like, I mean, sooner or later he'll have, I don't know, whatever. Three hundred million dollars in paper losses, um, but it doesn't matter because none of it was real, right? The only real consequences of, of, the, of this is that you've got this absolute pipeline flowing into wherever he lives, Ballackinwood, Pennsylvania, or something. That is, you know, um, or I mean, in this case, you know, if he's gambling it, then of course it's diffusing across the entire economy. So it's flooding in, and then it is effectively robbing purchasing power as it gets distributed through the economy, of course, in Cantillon, so, you know, in order to who receives it next. Okay, so this is good. Let me push you, because I was thinking about this.
1: Um, we're going we're gonna to go really deep here on the Human Action Podcast. Let me push back. It, I'm, I'm wondering if I, I think I might disagree with you on one little point there. Okay, so you're, there's a counterfeiter. He prints up a million dollars. We, we all agree like that right there is, is criminal. You know, in any, in any just society, that would be criminal. And, um, you know, if you try to say, well, it's specific because clearly he's diluting the value. He hasn't made the mere act of him creating a million new dollars has not created more farmland or more vehicles or more food. So, if, you know, if, if he went out and just bought a million dollars worth of consumption, clearly that means there's less stuff for mm-hmm. everybody else. You know, it has to be right. Some might benefit if they anticipate in some but in general, on average, everybody else, there's a, there has to be a sense in which they are a million dollars poor collectively to counteract, you know, to, to correspond to his million dollar gain. But now I want to say, suppose we've got two different possibilities. In one case, he takes the million and he buys a bunch of, you know, raw materials and hires workers and whatever to build a building. And then, but he he does a terrible job designing this and it just collapses. No one, no one dies. Like it collapses when no one's in it. In another scenario, it's actually a perfectly functional apartment building, and then he rents it out. And so, with his million, he parlayed that into future profits. Isn't there a sense in which, yeah, the fact that he made the millions bad, but if he then lost money by investing it poorly, that would also squander resources over and above the original problem, or not? Am I double counting?
0: Do do you get? Do do you don't we care which what he does with that million? Uh yeah well I think uh your example is excellent um it's very clear because you're tracing it from you know the original inflation all the way to the ultimate consequences of it um and you know so in the case like if he loses at the casino or something then it goes to somebody else it goes to somebody else and then the question is you know what do those individuals do with it you know do they go um do they waste it on stuff do they go eat food that you know, I don't know they buy so much expensive sushi that they throw up you know, whatever they do with it, then we can sort of trace through and see whether you know there was sort of a gain, a a, a net utility <laughs> gain for society. Um, but your example, right, where you know he goes out, he uh, builds a an apartment building that then falls down, right? So that 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 sort of you know compresses the whole process into mm-hmm. in, into one single question. And right in that case, if he went out and built a building that was useful, then we would say, well, he stole it, but he didn't necessarily destroy resources, setting aside the imperfect incentives. Um, but indeed, right, if he went out and built a building and then and then and then it collapsed, then um, then it would mean that you know those those resources were seized from society and they were they were not just stolen where they're still in existence, but they were actually then destroyed. Okay, so it's yeah, maybe that's a good way of putting
1: it. That rather. Yep. Him printing up money and then going and voluntarily bidding away the resources from others, you're saying that's morally and in some sense economically equivalent mm-hmm. to – well, no, it's not – here. If he just went around with a gun and grabbed all those resources, right. then you could say, okay, given that he stole all that stuff and pointed the gun at various you know workers and carpenters and said, hey, go build it. Right. Other things equal, yeah, I guess I'd rather him do a good job and make a building that's useful given that right. – Rather than the other thing. Um, and I guess the difference, though, is I was going to say it's, it's economically. But no, because if he's if he's pointing the gun then the, the, it's clear who the losers are, it's the people directly from whom he's stolen the stuff or the carpenter who's now being forced to work at gunpoint. Whereas if he prints the money, the losses kind of get distributed among all
0: users of that currency or all pe- right. holders of assets denominated in that currency. And your point is very important because we can bring that home to the specific money that we're talking about here, right? So you know, over the past uh, what three years since COVID hit, the Fed I think they're up what five trillion on their balance sheet so far. So and we can pretty much see where that money money went, um, you know, because it subsidized borrowing, right? And so uh, the borrowing during the entire COVID episode was was near zero. Rates were extraordinarily low. The the Fed rate was near zero. Uh, and so what did that lead to? What well, led to, you know, enormous um, government deficits. And then, you know, we had multi-trillion dollar deficits over those years. And where did that money go? Well, I would argue largely went to uh, financing COVID lockdowns. So in other words, the money they created that is now showing up as a loss, right, that was not spent on a nice apartment building. That was spent on COVID lockdowns or it was spent on whatever else the government has mm-hmm. been spending over the last three years, which much of it has been fairly wasteful. Um, so, right, so I'd argue that in this particular case, uh, I mean, pretty much in all cases, you know, the government or the the money that the Fed is creating that way because it is subsidizing borrowing, and borrowing is overwhelmingly, you know, the government, uh, large corporations, rich people, uh, it ends up being squandered, Uh, you know, so it's not just that it's being redistributed, it's being stolen from everybody else's dollars, but it's actually being squandered because it goes into subsidizing, uh, borrowing so that it's at below market rates. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. What you just said right there, you had a slightly different
1: train of argument, but I think we ended up at the same spot because here's what I was going to run this by you. Yeah. Um, I was thinking, okay, like if Walmart comes out and announces a billion dollar loss, should we care? Obviously, if you are part owner of Walmart, you care. If you work right. there, you know your pensions with them. Or I don't know if they have. Pen, I don't know how that works. But, um, they, well, I'm told they don't even pay people enough to live. So I don't know how their employees are still alive. But, um, so I don't. I doubt they give them pensions, right? But you know, clearly, you know, or supplier. Like, if you're a supplier and your main customers, what you care. But just the regular person who doesn't use Walmart, or whatever, doesn't shop there. Do they care? And I was thinking, well. And certainly in the Mesesian tradition, like what what does it mean when you earn an entrepreneurial profit? It's that there was a right. sense in which you anticipated future market conditions better than others. That's why you know there were resources that were relatively underpriced, and so you grabbed them, transformed them into something goods and services that the consumers bid more for. And you know the fact that you earned a profit means, in some sense, you you know saw the future better than your your rivals did. And so right. at least ex post looking back, like, you know, to, to announce I earned a big profit as a company means I was a good steward of society's resources, at least insofar as the consumers yep. are judges of what's good for them. And, and so then the flip side, if, if a big company announces a huge losses, there's a sense in which that's bad because, oh, you squandered some resources and it wasn't purely falling on your shareholders. Mm-hmm. Just like if somebody invents a cure for cancer, that guy's probably going to be rich. But it still helps other people too. It's not just that he yeah. you know, captures all the, so that sort of thing. And then I was like, okay, so for financial speculators, you know, if JP Morgan or some, some investment bank announces big losses, I guess it's showing that, oh, they actually screwed up the prices of assets because they bid improperly. So then, and here's where I, my conclusion, I think dovetailed. What you were saying. Yeah. So it, if we say, what's the harm in the fact that the fed bought a trillion dollars worth of assets and then, lost money it's because it must have overpaid for them and so it artificially pushed down interest rates through its actions which would screw everybody up you know given that interest rates are coordinating things so to among other implications if the fed's coming out and saying we just lost a bunch of money on our assets there's a sense in which well then you misled everybody through your actions and the bigger the loss the more harm you caused or you know the, the more you push m- financial markets out of equilibrium i guess if that's the way you want to how do you feel about yeah. that kind of
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we'll be able to quantify those or at least estimate them uh, at the next recession. Uh, Well, here, let's just imagine that we live in a (laughs) freer market. Uh, If we lived in a free world, um, in a free market world, then, of course, we'd be able to estimate all those uh, interventions the next recession because we could see how much of those malinvestments are liquidated. And then we could, you know, sort of tally up um, how much damage all of that Fed manipulation did. Of course, we don't live in that world, right? This, in, in this world, they're going to do a, Jap, a Japan-style zombie continuation to try to string along with Zerp, and we're ne- never actually going to see what the, um, all the malinvestment uh, is. They're just going to try to carry it on. Uh, but I'll have your metaphor of the cure for cancer, right? So in a sense, if Walmart is losing money, if I'm not a shareholder, you might say, and, and let's say I'm not a customer either, then you might say, why do you care? Well, I care for the same reason that, like, if I don't have cancer and I read in the newspaper that they cured cancer and then the next day I read that, oh, it turns out the cure doesn't work, I'm I'm very sad. Something very valuable mm-hmm. <laughs> that I thought was created, it turns out it's not there. And so similarly, a Walmart that is making profit indicates to you that it is, it is an amazing thing. It is this machine that creates happiness and, you know, children all across the land. It's like Santa Claus, right? Children can have uh, high-quality... <laughs> Uh, low-priced consumer items, and then if it turns out that you know they're actually making a loss, then what this tells me is that the machine is broken, uh, it's not working, and you know we might hope that uh, Walmart management uh, figures out what the problem is. Maybe it was just a one-off mistake they made. Maybe you know the people need to be switched or whatever. Um, but it you know it's an indication that at least that that machine is sick. And of course, the economy is made up. I mean, in a sense, um, it, it's made up of, of a whole bunch of machines. Uh, Whether they're corporations, whether they're individuals, you know, trying for some goal in life. And, you know, just like I'd be very sad if an individual said, you know, I decided to finally go running every day and I did it for 300 days, but uh, yesterday I slept in. OK, yeah, I'd be kind of sad for them, you know, even, even though I'm not the residual claimant, I'm not the one who's benefiting from the exercise, you know, but I love the fact that value is being created. And especially when it's on the scale of Walmart, which is, you know, I, I don't know, a three hundred billion dollar company or something. Um, I would certainly hope that that machine is not breaking.
1: Yeah, yes, definitely. OK, well, that's probably as good a spot as any to, to wrap up. Um, so my guest this week, folks, has been Peter St. Ange. Peter, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me on, Bob. And we will be back next week with Jeff back in his uh, seat to bring you the latest news and chicanery from the Fed and other places. Thanks for listening.
0: Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org.